Scarlet stood before the court, an attorney in a suit, swore an oath to tell the truth. Scarlet Welcome back to For the Defense. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and we've reached season four of the podcast. I'm really excited to getting back to what we were known for, speaking to criminal defense lawyers about their most fascinating cases. And we're gonna start off season four with a true legendary case from South Florida, the Two Live Crew prosecution. And in this case, Bruce Rogo represented the band members of Two Live Crew back in the 90s for an obscenity case. The local sheriff, Nick Navarro, went after Two Live Crew for playing what he believed were obscene songs. And it wasn't just the sheriff, it was the governor and many other folks calling for their prosecution. And this really set the stage for um, other artists being able to perform like Cardi B and so on. And the music you hear in the background, that is the Two Live Crew music that was at issue back in this case, one of the songs. We've got a great, great season coming up for you uh, with lots of wonderful criminal defense lawyers and cases from Jeffrey Figer talking about the Jack Kevorkian trial, Jerry Goldstein out in Texas talking about Deep Throat, Mark Garagos who represented Susan McDougal, Juanita Brooks who represented John DeLorean in his case up in Michigan. We have Brian Heberlig, Ed Showhat, and lots of other uh, really fun criminal defense lawyers and cases um, this case, I think you're going to really enjoy because it gets into the twists and turns of prosecuting uh, a band for their music. Really insane. In a separate case, Bruce Rogo represents Two Live Crew all the way to the Supreme Court. We'll talk a little about that as well. Let's get right into it with Bruce Rogo for the defense. We're here with the wonderful Bruce Rogo, one of the premier all-time lawyers, not just in Florida, but in the country. He's argued 11 cases in the Supreme Court. He's uh, been doing this for over 55 years, which is just amazing. And today we're going to be talking about one of the most fun cases that I've had a chance to to read and learn about, the Two Live crew, Crew Luther Campbell case. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. So, you know, the Two Live Crew case, this is, of course, Miami legend, Miami uh, lore, but it actually happened in Fort Lauderdale with a judge named Jose Gonzalez to start out. Um, And they were, um, there was this whole controversy with their album as nasty as they want to be. And it turns out you you took the first step and sued. Um, Tell us a little about what happened before we get to the criminal case. Well, you know, I didn't know anything about hip hop music. Uh, One of the great things about being a lawyer is how much you learn. Uh, And this was a good example of how much I learned. So Alan Jacoby, who is a lawyer in Miami, who had been my student at the University of Miami, called me and said he wanted to bring two live crew up to see me. And I said, Alan, are you doing immigration work now? I thought two live crew were people who had survived a raft trip from Cuba or Haiti. I had no idea who two live crew were. And he said, no, no, they're a rap group and they're under some pressure because they did a recording and some people think it's obscene. So he brought Luther Campbell up to my house in Fort Lauderdale and I met I met Luke and we hit it off right away. Uh, and I said, let me hear the record. 
And he said, well, I've got, I've got a disc of, of it, actually a tape at that time, but I've got the words printed out. And so I said, well, let me read the words. And I could see that the words were, were uh, different, obviously. Uh, it, it was pretty, uh, uh, pretty rough. And uh, then I listened to the music and I heard the beat and I knew that there was more to it than just the words. And he said, after we talked, he said, do you think I can win? And I said, Luther, I'll tell you, I think you can win. But even if you lose, you'll win. And he said, what kind of jive white man talk is that? <laughs> and I said, you know, if the government says people can't have something, everybody's going to want to have it. So that's why I said, even if you lose, you'll win. And uh, Navarro was, was the sheriff at the time, who was a friend of mine. Actually, he'd come to my 50th birthday party. And we were close, and I liked Nick a lot, but I knew that he was uh, a guy who never met a camera he didn't like. And I knew that he would, he would love to take off after this. And so basically, he did. He went to Mel Grossman, who was a circuit judge, and showed him the lyrics. Uh, I'm not sure he even played the music. And Mel signed a probable cause affidavit that uh, there was probable cause it was obscene. So with that, uh, there was this threat, obviously, of prosecution. And because I knew about 1983 litigation and affirmative litigation, I said, we're going to sue first and we're going to sue and seek to declare the record to not be obscene. Nobody right. had ever done that before. And that was the start. And that's how we fell before Jose Gonzalez. Now, uh, now I've appeared before Judge Gonzalez. He's such a nice, easygoing man, smart, um, but he's conservative and religious. And, and so... How did you feel when when you got this draw with the two life crew case? You know, I, I liked Gonzalez. I mean, Rutger was the other judge in Fort Lauderdale who was a, an interesting guy, too. But I was happy with Gonzalez because he had a sense of humor. Uh, he had a, a kind of a general uh, doubts about government and uh, some of the things that they do. So I thought this might be good. And I knew him because we used to go to the symphony, uh, sit a couple of seats away from him. And uh, his, I'm not sure he was married then to, uh, to his wife, who was one of my former students. But in any event, I was happy with Gonzalez because he's a good guy. So, so and, what does he do? Uh, he, he sets it for a hearing where, where he's going to judge whether this is obscene or not. How does it work? Yeah, well, it was a declaratory judgment. So, you know, we were the plaintiffs suing Navarro uh, for a declaratory judgment that the record wasn't obscene. There certainly was standing because we were threatened with injury, no question about it, after Mel Grossman had signed the probable cause affidavit. And I, I actually thought that with everything that I submitted to Gonzalez uh, in terms of the, the written pleadings, that he would get the message that if he found that the record was not obscene, it would go away. Ultimately, right, uh, right. I, I knew he was crafty enough to know that if the government says you can't have it, people are going to want it. So but but we ended up with a trial, a week of trial. And then it was the Miller versus California test. And so I got to put on what was available in the community. I got to put on all kinds of of uh, videos, of magazines. I mean, it, it was pretty outrageous. I mean, we went shopping and of course the press was always with me and we go to the adult bookstores and buy the most outrageous things we could buy. But I, I saw the, I saw you also so, played things like like Andrew Dice Clay and Eddie Murphy, which which wasn't yes, that outrageous, you know, yeah. those, those sorts of things, which which, you know, nobody was going after those guys. 
Right. I mean, so so there there was a whole body of work out there. Not, nothing to the level of two live crew, and nothing as overtly sexual as that. But but the best story from the trial, I think, is uh, there was in one of the songs in Me So Horny, there's a word called splack. Uh, and when I talked to, I think it was either Chris Wong Wong or, or, uh, uh, or Brother Ice, uh, I said, so what is splack? I, 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 don't, what is, I, I don't know this word. I know all the other words. And he said, well, splack is when you're all hot and she's all hot and you're going together, bang, 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 bang. And that's what you hear, splack, splack, splack. And I thought it was kind of onomatopoetic, you know, I thought <laughs> I, I got it. Anyway, that, that, that then was to me one of the best moments of the trial because when uh, they were cross-examined, whichever one it was, Chris or, or uh, uh, and, uh, or who I guess it was Chris, I think. And so the prosecutor, the assistant state attorney, I forget who it was, gets to that point and says, so what's black? And so now we hear this long, long explanation of splack and sex and wetness and stuff like that. And Gonzalez is just sitting there. Uh, oh it's God. a non-jury thing. It's a declaratory judgment. And of course, everybody is breaking up and, uh, and the other great story of the trial was that because I could put on all kinds of evidence. In fact, Gonzalez issued an order that you had to be over 18 to look at anything in the public record of this. And I got a videotape uh, at a bookstore in Fort Lauderdale that had three vignettes of women masturbating. And I introduced that. We played one vignette. And I could see Gonzalez was not happy having to suffer this. And the, the, the audience was actually getting a big kick out of it. And the, uh, I said to the state, if you'll, if you'll agree, stipulate that the other two vignettes are the same, we don't have to play any more of this. And so they did, and we didn't play any more of it. When the case went up on appeal, because Gonzalez ruled against us, when the case went up on appeal, all the record evidence went up. And then when we won on appeal, it all came back. And I went over to the clerk's office to pick up the, all of the material that had been uh, exhibits in the case. And I looked through it all. And the one thing that was missing was that tape. Somebody in the clerk's office had decided oh. they, liked, they liked that tape. Oh my, that's <laughs> a great story. That's a funny story. Um, <laughs> You know, let me let me pause here for a second, Bruce, because it's always struck me when speaking to you about cases and, and hearing from you, you're always so zen. And, and one of the things that lawyers, including me, we get so stressed and, and freaking out when we're in trial and arguing appeals. And, and, and how do you stay so zen about all this stuff? I'll tell you how it started for me in Mississippi in 1964. Uh, you know, I started in Mississippi representing civil rights workers. And the first day I was there, I had to get someone out of jail. And every time I was almost there, they threw up one roadblock after another. See this judge, see that judge, you have to get this signed. Yeah. And, and within a few minutes, I realized this was all done to try to drive me out of town, basically. Yeah. And it just, I just had the opposite reaction. I said, oh, I look forward to seeing Judge so-and-so. Oh, yeah, I can't wait to see Sheriff so-and-so. And I think that really was the start of my recognizing that uh, it doesn't serve you well to get so unnerved about these things and frustrated. Uh, you might as well just relax and enjoy it. I, so, I need uh, some of what you're having. So, so <laughs> Gonzalez writes, um, I'll read part of his order. He says... Uh, it's quite true that not all speech with sex as its topic is obscene, 
The as nasty as they want to be recording is another matter. It is an appeal uh, directed to dirty thoughts and the loins, not the intellect and the mind, which I thought was a, a pretty funny line. But of course, that's not the test. I know. And, and, you know, I mean, we've spent time with, with uh, Jose and Mary up in Lenox at their house up there. And so, you know, I'm friends with them. And I'll tell you another story that ties some of this together. But uh, he this was just completely out of his his uh, right. ballpark. Uh, you know, there's no question about it. it you know, it pushed things. He, his his fa- his father was the postmaster in Tampa. He he's conservative, certainly religiously and, and uh, philosophically about many things. Yeah. And I think he was concerned about his grandchildren. Uh, he was thinking about his grandchildren. This is the new era. This is the kind of stuff they're going to hear, which, by the way, the other day I, I talked to some people who are familiar and doing stuff with Cardi B. And Cardi B said that she wouldn't have been able to do uh, WAP without uh, Luther Campbell having broken ground. First. I saw that. That was so, so nice to see that she gave uh, kudos to you and, and Luke. That was that was great. Um, I also well, saw wait, that. I, wait, don't, don't. I'm not sure I'm going to let you say kudos to me because it, it well, was. Well, you're the one who Luther. won the case, Bruce. You're the oh, one who well. won the case. <laughs> you know, Luther, Luther, uh, if, if not for you, um, could be could have been behind bars or that that album may not have sold. Um, I, I, I saw that when Judge Gonzalez issued his very lengthy order, um, all the press was there in the courtroom to get it. And he ordered the doors locked so that they would have to read the order before they left, which I, I got a kick out of uh, Gonzalez doing that. I know that was so strange, so bizarre. But but here's here's a great footnote to all this. So the night that Obama was elected. Uh, that day, the first election, I think it was, uh, there was a story in the New York Times uh, in the morning, a full page story about Luther Campbell and the Northwest High School football team and the Florida High School Athletic Association wanting to sanction him because he'd been involved in, in this kind of music. And it was very favorable to Luther. And I walked in and Jose, we had a party at Bill Spencer's house. He's a lawyer in Fort Lauderdale, an election night party. And Jose was there. And as soon as I walked in, Jose said, did you read the paper this morning? And I knew what he was talking about. I said, I did. I said, it was great. And Jose said, he wouldn't be anywhere if it hadn't been for me. And I laughed and I said, stay right here. I texted Luke, I'm here with Jose Gonzalez. And he said that you wouldn't be anywhere if it were not for him. And I asked Jose to push send on the text and Jose pushed send. And the message went to Luke. Within 30 seconds, Luke texted back, he's right. So, <laughs> so we, we, we owe, Luke owes not only you, but, but Judge Gonzalez too. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I love it. So, so that leads, of course, when Gonzalez rules against you, which of course gets reversed on appeal and, and everybody expected that. But, but in the meantime, he's, there's this ruling against you and that gives Sheriff Nick uh, Navarro all the ammo he needs to go forward. And, and so what happens? He arrests your guy? 
Well, they played at Club Futura in Hollywood. It was a nightclub in Hollywood. And they, they said, we're going to sing these songs. I said, you know, you'll probably get arrested, but it's fine if you do. Uh, and so they went and played at Club Futura. I mean, the, the hilarious part was, so there were, there were, quote, undercover sheriff's deputies there wearing plain white kind of cotton shirts, uh, polyester shirts. I'm sure and, they didn't stick Luke, out. I'm sure they didn't stick out at Club Futura. <laughs> well, not, not only were they obvious, but in their shirt pockets, they had their recorders on and the red light was on and the guys on the stage could see the red <laughs> lights on while they were recording the, the music. And uh, so, but, but they, they all got out uh, afterwards. I think, I don't think anybody was taken to jail that night. I don't remember, but anyway, but I turned everybody in, uh, you know, to the extent I said, Hey, just, you know, give me an ROR. And so that led to the, to the criminal trial. Okay. So, so they're charged actually with misdemeanor. So you're in County court, right? Um, yes. It's getting ready for trial. Um, and, and I saw that on the first day of the trial, Luke and, and the, some of the other members of Two Live Crew show up late uh, and, and the judge orders uh, contempt proceedings. You must have been dying on that first. I mean, I know you don't get shaken, but still, when your client doesn't show up, that's not a good first day of trial. <laughs> no, well, I knew they were on their way. The, the judge, by the way, was June Johnson, who'd been one of my students at NOVA. Right. So, and, and I think that, as I recall, the state moved to recuse her because she had been my student. And, you know, I don't remember the details of it. I think one of the things I may have said was she only got a C or something like that. So, <laughs> well, I think uh, so. I was going to was going to bring that up. I think she said uh, she didn't when you brought up that she got a C. She said she doesn't remember what grade she got, but it wasn't very good and she wouldn't take any more classes with you. <laughs> um, so I thought that was a pretty funny line that she had, too. Um, of course, the whole thing is so silly. I mean, it, you know, that's not enough to recuse a judge. It, no, I know it was, it was, and you know, the, the, uh, the prosecutors, Pedro de Joles, uh, was one who became a county court judge later and a woman, I forgot her name, a very nice woman who's Jamaican and, and both Leslie Robeson, Leslie, Leslie Robeson. Right. Right. And, and both were people of color and, and Luther was outraged about that. He, he was really, uh, upset and angry about it. Uh, somehow or other that, that they were, you know, to have black people prosecuting him in this situation. Why did he uh, feel did he feel that it, that they chose those prosecutors on purpose or, or why was he upset about it? Uh, I think I think a kind of feeling of of uh, togetherness. There should have been more acceptability and the prosecutors should have mm -hmm. said, no, we're not. We don't want to do this case. This is not the kind of thing we want to do. But uh, but anyway, I mean, the very first and June Johnson read uh, some of the lyrics to begin with. And Luther got very upset and jumped up and stormed out. And I had to go to another room with him and say, you know, this is this is the way it has to be. And this is what you wrote. And, and this was an important point. He said, he said, yes, but it wasn't meant to be read. It was meant to be sung. There's music, there's beat, there's rhythm, you know, and that's the whole misunderstanding that a lot of people have. You don't look at it just with the words. Really, really interesting point. And I can see why he got upset, you know, with, with that judge just reading them there on a cold piece of paper without without the whole thing. Um, but meantime, you know, the, the race, not of the not just of the prosecutors, but of the jurors was also at issue when when you walked in. Um, the Venire only had three of 25 
potential jurors um, were black. And, and I know you uh, were very upset about this um, and, and raised the issue with the judge. What happened with all that? You know, not, nothing ultimately at, at the end. I mean, you know, you know, I had been, it's interesting because I was very sensitive to, to discrimination in jury selection because when I practiced law in Mississippi, I could get a new trial in every case because yeah. <laughs> because every every jury had been discriminately uh, excluding uh, black people. So uh, I raised it, and you know I I wasn't actually that upset about it because I I, I realized if anything you know you you could probably find a lot of older black women who would not be happy with this language. So, so while you, you make this, this thing uh, based on color and issue, but it was deeper than color. So I, I didn't really, that really didn't bother me. Uh, one thing that was interesting was that the, both of the prosecutors were young. There was a white woman on, uh, who ultimately was on the jury who had taught at Howard University. And I found that out during the voir dire. And I don't think they understood that Howard University was a black college, oh, uh, or a black college. And here was an older white woman. I mean, if there was any, anybody who would get it, uh, it, would be, it would be this woman. And uh, so right. that was one one interesting thing that I recall. I saw there, there were some really funny moments in voir dire, Bruce. I saw one juror say, uh, uh, oh, I hear worse language than that every day. I'm a kindergarten teacher, which I <laughs> thought was a great line um, uh, from one juror. And, and then I saw, you know, this was a really interesting point. People don't realize, I think, how strategic jury selection is and and, you know, how lawyers are, have to make really quick decisions when the strikes are happening. Uh, and it turns out that the government in this case made a couple mistakes um, when they passed over the jury uh, twice and then it was locked. Um, and, and it ended up with one uh, black juror that uh, one black man on the jury that they didn't want. And the judge, they, they asked the judge, well, we made a mistake and we have another chance to strike that juror. And the judge said something like, you snooze, you lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they, they, uh, you know, I don't know how much experience they had in trying cases either, uh, but they certainly they certainly couldn't read between the lines very well. Now, there was a, there was a fascinating situation where one of the potential jurors was a white biker wearing a wearing a wife beater undershirt, you know, came to court in a wife beater undershirt and a uh, rough looking guy. And Campbell said, we need to get rid of him. I said, you know, this is the kind of guy who doesn't like government authority. This right. is the kind of guy who you want on a jury like this. I mean, the last, the last kind of person that is going to succumb to the government is a biker, a Hell's Angel biker. You know, I, don't, I don't know if he was a Hell's Angel, but he was of that genre. And Campbell said, I can't look at him. No, he's a white honky and get rid of him. So, <laughs> so I did. And, and uh, I used a peremptory on him. And he got up to leave and he walked by the council table on his way out and he high five Luke and he oh. said, go get him, brother. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I guess he regretted it after that. Um, you know, I guess at the time, um, your clients weren't as well known as they are now, of course, and, and didn't have a ton of money. Were you able to have, you know, resources like a jury consultant or those types of things or you weren't able to do that? 
Yeah, no, actually, they were very good. And the truth is, they were making money. I mean, what had happened uh, was uh, because of Gonzalez's order, uh, they were selling records uh, off the shelf. I mean, he had those records as nasty as they want to be. And and the whole he had a couple of other albums. Uh, They were in a warehouse in Miami and they hadn't sold. I don't know. They sold a couple of thousand but when all of this took off, you know, the, it just went off the charts. And Tung Aram signed him up later with a five million dollar check to uh, to Amazing. be be the distributor. And that's what, and that's when Luke turned to me and said, "Now I know what you meant when you said, even if I lose, I'll win." <laughs> but but uh, yeah, they they had they had the resources. Uh, the uh, we hired Henry Louis Gates, uh, Skip Gates who testified for us on t- in terms of the artistic value. And he talked about the fact that this is part of the historical kind of call and response, you know, from African music uh, and that there was, that there was artistic value. And he certainly made the point that you have to listen to more than just the words, but the music. And so Skip was very effective uh, and, 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 was- and expensive. And expensive. <laughs> I, I bet, I bet. I bet. I saw that at one point the prosecutor sort of went after the group saying, you know, you stole all the beats from other artists and, and, and Luke uh, gave, gave the finger to uh, the prosecutors. <laughs> Is that something he did in front of the jury or, or so they couldn't see it? You know, I don't think they saw it. Yeah. But let me say this. I, th- I, think, I think if they saw it, they would have laughed. Because because at some point it was clear, you know, while this is serious business and it's a misdemeanor and there's potential jail time, uh, the jury got the message right away. What what are we doing here? And they enjoyed it. I mean, the truth is the jury had a good time uh, being jurors in the case. I I saw it because, you know, the prosecutor obviously tried to keep it very serious, even from right from the openings. Her uh, Robeson's opening was something like. Uh, you're going to hear graphic depictions of intercourse and deviant sexual acts. Um, And of course you responded in your opening by saying, you know, you have to understand the language in the context of hip hop, uh, which reflects exaggerations, parody, humor. These words as crude as some people find them can have artistic value when you have an understanding, when you have them in effect decoded. And I I like that theme, which is, you know, you know, you can't just read those words on the piece of paper. You have to understand them in, in context, right? That's that was the sort of theme of the case. Yes. I mean, you know, in fact, the Miller versus California test talks about the work taken as a whole. Uh, and so when you think about something like this taken as a whole, it is more than just a bunch of words written down in black and white. You know, it, it, it's music, it's sounds, it's beat. Uh, There's a lot to it. So. I think that that the state and I understand why. I mean, first of all, this was a heavy political uh, kind of issue at the time uh, that the governor had started with. You know, this is obscene. This is terrible. People shouldn't be listening to this. But I'll tell you, it's interesting when you think about it. There were a couple of situations in a couple of places around the country where where charges were either threatened or brought but but dropped. Uh, but it's really a, a kind of credit to the state attorneys and the sheriffs around the country who didn't act on it. I mean, you know, this this thing was available everywhere. So you, you could have had hundreds, thousands of prosecutors saying, OK, we're going to go after this. But luckily, it only happened in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, 
Yeah, you know, I, I recently spoke to him. We're going to have on the podcast Jerry Goldstein, who did the deep throat case uh, in in Texas uh, before yours, and they arrested the projectionist, of course, in that case for playing uh, the the video or the movie. Um, but that was the only place they they went. That was the sort of the test case, I guess. Yours was the test case too. And you know, Bruce, you do so many appeals, which of course is very different. You know, you have your 15 minutes to argue. There's so much preparation for that 15 minutes. Um, everything is sort of staged out beforehand. You get the questions, but most appellate lawyers know the questions they're going to get through preparation. Trials are so different, of course. They're chaotic and things happen. And, and I saw that in your trial, the government couldn't even get the tape uh, to be heard or understood. Um, was that a surprise to you or you knew that was coming? No, I, I, you know, I didn't know it was coming. I figured that, you know, they're going to have a problem with it. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't remember that, that detail of it. I mean, you know, this is how long ago was it? No, David? this was 1990. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was 30 years ago. Uh, and and uh, so some of that stuff is forgotten. You know, the high points you kind of remember. But uh, but the details of it, I don't. Even my opening argument, it sounded pretty good. Yeah, that I sounded pretty good. <laughs> that sounded, sounded pretty good. I, I like um, that you called um, uh, Gates uh, as your expert. He was talking about Archie Bunker. I don't know if you remember this. So he was talking about you know Archie Bunker as as uh, a parody of of racism as well. How did that? Do you know how that played with the jury? Was that was yeah, what was that strategy? No, no. Yeah, it did because because it really it, it was. I, I this jury was actually pretty sophisticated. I mean, there was another woman on who was a sister of of a, of a lawyer, uh, and 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 I and I think her sister had been my student too. So so these were people who who could get it. Uh, and you know, the Archie Bunker thing. There would be a lot of people who used to watch Archie Bunker sure. and take the racist things he said literally as if he as if he meant it, but not understanding that he was making a fool out of people. Uh, but you had to have that other level of understanding. And that's why Skip Gates was so good at uh, at this. But here's a funny Skip Gates story. So uh, he had to spend the night. He flew down and I thought we'd get him on and off in one day and go back to Boston and uh well, it must have come the day before, too. I remember we had we had a great dinner uh, over on the beach <clears throat> and he enjoyed I have a lot of African art at my house. And so he was a, a big uh, uh, consumer of, of looking at all the masks and stuff. Anyway, so we hit it off well and I put him up at the Riverside Hotel. Uh, on Las Olas. And he said, you know, he's got to stay another night. He needs to get a new shirt and stuff like that. Uh, and I said, yeah, I, I agree. So go go to Mouse and Hoffman, which is a nice expensive store on, on Las Olas, and just put it on my charge account. And so about 6.30, I get a call from Mouse and Hoffman. Uh, Mr. Rogo, yes, Mr. Gates is here and uh, he's bought some clothes and he said that we should put them on your account. I said, yes, of course. I said, what did he get? So, well, he got a new suit uh, and, and he got a shirt and and uh, and and he got this is what struck me. He got two pair of socks. Uh, and afterwards, I said, Skip, I said, you know, I get it. I mean, you don't want to come to court the next day looking like you've been the day before. That's fine. Uh, but two pair of socks. I said, why would you buy two pair of socks? 
He said, because my mother always told me, when you buy socks, buy two pairs. So if you get a hole in one sock, you'll still be able to have a pair. <laughs> That's great. I love it. That's a great story. Um, so, so it looks like the trial, you know, is going so well. And, and of course, the jury comes out in your favor. Um, how, did, how did Luke and the guys respond? They must have gone crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some pictures uh, that Rolling Stone and some other places had. You know, everybody was high fiving and every, everybody was uh, was happy. I mean, it it, it was uh, it was a foolish thing to try the case. I mean, if they had been smart, they they would have said, "Look, let's see what happens with the 11th Circuit. Let's let it pass." But you know, sometimes uh, th- these decisions that are made mostly out of vanity, I think. Uh, I mean, Navarro, Nick, here's another footnote. So when Nick died, his wife brought me the drawings of the various cases that I'd had uh, with Nick in federal court, where you had the court drawings done by the artists. And she said, Nick, Nick Nick would like you to have these cases. I mean, I I tried to knock him off the ballot before he became sheriff because he switched parties. And, uh, you know, so so I had a long history with him, but I thought that was nice that uh, very nice. Yeah. Very, very nice. And so so you guys win this case. It, do you get to go to the after party, Bruce, uh, with, with with the two live crew guys? <laughs> you know, I don't remember what we did, but be, but before well, before the before the trial, before Gonzalez, it was Mother's Day. The trial started the Monday after Mother's Day. And so the whole crew came to my house in Fort Lauderdale. You know, I've got young children. My wife was not happy with with the words, you know, that she she was when and she didn't know what to make really of them. But when when the guys came, they had, you know, wearing nice clothes, polo shirts. Uh, Everybody was very respectful. And it was just another example of how, how people's stage persona can be different from their private persona. I mean, they're an absolute delight. And later on, we all went uh, on a. Nick, not Nick, uh, Luke rented a ship to give everybody a reward for the success of the case and two live crew. And the security on this little yacht that he, a a pretty good sized yacht that he he, uh, uh, rented was Navarro security. By then Navarro was no longer the sheriff. Uh, he was now he had the security firm. And so Luke's comment was, I always said that one day Nick would work for me. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And so one one note, I saw this. I was surprised that the jury was sequestered, actually. I mean, usually you see that in a murder case where it's going to, you know, like an O.J. Simpson or something like this. But for a county court misdemeanor, having the jury sequestered, I mean, you don't see that every day. Is that something you wanted? I don't, I don't think you ever see it. No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't want it. Uh, but it was just another example of the state recognizing that there was going to be a lot of publicity and the publicity was going to be favorable. Right. I mean, there was no question about it. Right. So from their point of view, they, they didn't want it. And I thought, you know, that that was it, it. It was, you know, when you're in the middle of it, sometimes you don't realize how how big an issue it is. You're focused on the case. You want to win the case. You want to, you know, every day you got to go to court. You got to make sure you know what you're doing. Uh, So I wasn't thinking so much about that, but it was just another example of of the vanity uh, of, of Nick of, and in a way of, uh, of the prosecutor's office. It kind of surprised me that, uh, that they even proceeded. You know, afterwards, the jurors um, were interviewed and one of the jurors parroted a line that you said in your closing. And, and that's got to be the highest compliment. He said, um, 
you know, if you take away one freedom, pretty soon they're all gone. And that was, you know, a line straight from your closing. And I, I just love that the <laughs> juror afterwards is, is out there sort of, you know, teaching, right? Yeah, except that now that kind of line can be used in a whole different way. Well, f- f- fair enough. F- fair enough. Um, we're seeing that happen. Um, a couple, couple little side notes that I, I saw from the case I want to ask you about. Apparently, before uh, Luke and Two Live Crew were charged, a shop owner named Charles Freeman was charged um, for selling the album, and he actually got convicted. Um, was that ever overturned, or what happened yeah. to Freeman? Yeah. Well, so that that was fun. Now, Charles Freeman had a shop on Sistrunk, uh, and I lived not too far from there when I lived in uh, Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I knew Freeman, and I said, Charles, you don't have to bother to sell this because it's, you know, you're going to get pinched because Navarro is going to want to pinch you. And it was on a Saturday morning. He said, no, I'm going to sell it. He said, I want to make a stand. What I didn't know was that Freeman also was under investigation for selling drugs. (laughs) That part I didn't know. But uh, I told him not to sell it, but he sold it. He gave me a call. He said, he said, all the newspapers and TV cameras are out in front of my store now. This is on a Saturday morning. I said, well, I guess the sheriff's on his way and you're going to get arrested. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and of course he did. And then Milt Hirsch called me and said he wants to try that case with me. So we tried that case in front of Paul Bachman. Now, the jury there, I think the forewoman of the jury was a woman who lived in Lighthouse Point, had a two million dollar house. You know, and this is back 30 years ago. And it was uh, I think that was an all white jury. And Backman Backman was very good. Now, here's a funny story too. Backman. At one point, his son was being bar mitzvah and he, he called me to the bench after the hearing one day and he said, you think you can get me a signed uh, poster by Luther <laughs> Campbell, you know, for the, for the bar mitzvah was yeah, Saturday. Right. I said, Paul, I said, I, I, I think we need to wait till the trial was over. <laughs> that's, that's great. I, you know, Milt's my former partner. I, when I saw his name pop up when I was doing my research, I, I saw he, uh, he quoted Voltaire who said, uh, I may not agree with what you rap, but I'll defend to the death. You're right to rap it, which I thought was a funny line uh, from Milt. You know, Milt, Milt is a hoot, and uh, and I I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed doing this with Milt, and we had a good time. And, and you know, I think I I'm not sure exactly how it happened that he that he came on the scene, but I mean, I certainly welcomed him on the scene. I mean, I didn't want to have all the fun myself, but yeah, but. But so Freeman, Freeman got convicted and then we appealed to the fourth DCA and they reversed the conviction. So, so Bruce, I mean, this was, sounds like the most fun case. Um, you know, we, we talked a little about the impact with some of the artists, you know, appreciating Luke fighting for it. I mean, it, broader sense, what's the impact for the First Amendment and, and in today's world from, from that case? You know, at that time, two things were happening. The Maplethorpe uh, uh, thing in in Cincinnati, there was an art exhibit at the Cincinnati Art Museum, and the Maplethorpe photographs had uh, were highly sexual. You know, they were they were male homoerotic uh, things. There was one with a, a whip ins- inserted in the rectum of uh, one of the people being uh, photographed. And so at that point in time, and Tipper Gore was active in terms of wanting to have parental advisories on things. So it certainly was a time when there was a lot of, uh, excuse my dog, 
when, when, the, when there was a lot of uh, tension with regard to, to harsh words and obscenity. Uh, but, but I think what it did was it cured uh, any kind of prosecutions for the future. When, once that happened, both right. the two live crew case and the Maplethorpe case, uh, I think you, you haven't seen many of these kind of obscenity prosecutions. You know, and then you get you get Cardi B, you know, wet ass pussy. Uh, you know, that's that. And, and now, you're, you know, kids, these are 12, 14 year old kids who are into this. So, you know, when Cardi B has to thank Luther Campbell for opening the door for her to do that, you have to you have to wonder a little bit about is is this the best kind of music, the best kind of sounds? Uh, and yet, you know, it, they're just words, uh, but words obviously have impact. You know, I always used to tell my students, did your mother, I always used to ask them, did your mother tell you that sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you? And of course, everybody says, yes, yes, my mother told me. I said, you know, she lied to you because the truth is, is that words will last a lot longer in terms of hurting you than uh, than cutting, a, you know, your finger or being hit on the head with a with a mm. stone. Uh, and so so, you know, there's a, a mixed kind of uh, way to look at this one. Yes, it's a speech and you need to tolerate speech, obviously. And the other is but words have meaning and words can affect how people act. Sure. But, but we certainly don't want. Uh, the Nick Navarro's of the world being the judges of what uh, speech is permissible and not permissible. That's the other side of it, right? Oh, yes. Right. No, I mean, you know, and listen, you know, talk about about speech. So when it says in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law, even that's a lie, because because obviously <laughs> they can make laws limiting sure. speech. No, so, of course. So even, so even the guarantee of speech itself is is uh, uh, is is not a promise that is kept, and and it sounds like you know after all this you you've stayed in touch with uh, Uncle Luke and and he's still a big figure here in Miami. People say he should run for mayor or be the coach of the Hurricanes. I mean, uh, the guy is really <laughs> the, you know he's 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 still very prominent figure down in Miami. You know, there's a lot to him. He was bused to Beach High uh, from Liberty City. And where did he learn music? He said he learned music playing with 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 stuff uh, in that he could find on the street. Uh, the the tops of garbage cans, uh, things like that, were his his percussion instruments. Uh, so there's a lot to Luther Campbell, and I think, by the way, that going through all this and remember the the parody case, we went to the Supreme Court on the on the right. Pretty Woman parody case. And uh, when we went to the Supreme Court, the clerk of the court, Bill Souter, was worried because he'd had a problem once before with uh, what's Larry Flint, who had gotten up and, and shouted some obscenity and they carried him out or wheeled him out anyway. But they didn't know what to make of, uh, of Campbell because he was just coming off of the obscenity stuff. But Luther wore a beautiful Armani suit. You know, he was just just a gentleman, as he always is off stage. And uh, afterwards, every time I went to the Supreme Court, Bill Souter would say, how's my friend, Mr. Campbell? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, people people remember, of course, the criminal case in Navarro, but they forget Luke Campbell also went to the Supreme Court. It's really amazing. Yes. I mean, nine to nothing on the parody case. Uh, you know, it, it, his song was Harry Woman, the parody of Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman. And, uh, and you know, Roy Orbison's crystalline, beautiful voice. Uh, and then you've got Harry Woman. 
And uh, but, you know, the other thing, Bruce Springsteen gave him the right to uh, born in the USA because banned in the USA was take off on born in the USA. And in fact, I've got the gold record from banned in the USA. Oh, that's movie. great. But uh, yeah, so he's had so he's had he's had an effect both in in uh, copyright law. I mean, he's basically established that parody is protected by copyright law in obscenity law. Uh, Miller versus California First Amendment law. He established that uh, that that you have to look at more than just the words. You have to look at the total product, the record. So, yes, he's had a he's had a very large influence in the law. He's been more successful than than most lawyers. He's won a trial. He's won an appeal and he's won in the Supreme Court. I mean, how many people can say that? <laughs> yeah, no, really. And, and, you know, none of it was his plan. I mean, all these things just evolved. But again, it couldn't have happened without the, the foil of the other side. I mean, had Nick let this go, you wouldn't have had the, the Luther Campbell we know today. If Acuff Rose Music, who owned Roy Orbison's rights, just said, forget it, we're not going to do anything. Because all that did was make it more popular. I mean, how can they not get that? How can they not see that? But everybody gets carried away. Uh, right. So right. and and in the in the parody case in the Supreme Court, I mean, it was nine to nothing. You know, Acuff Rose hired a law firm in New York and, uh, you know, and it was it was uh, let me say this it it wasn't clear to me what copyright law was this is why i say you learn so much so i didn't do copyright law but then when this happened yeah now i got to know copyright law became an expert <laughs> yes for that moment <laughs> sure um well bruce this was awesome it's so good to hear these stories and and i really appreciate hearing them and i know i know the listeners do as well thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this case and it's really fascinating and great Okay, well, thank you, David. I enjoyed it. Good seeing you and uh, see you again soon. Well, that was really a lot of fun. I want to thank Bruce for sitting down with me and doing that interview. I mean, the guy is a true Zen master and his practice has been incredible, right? I mean, he's argued so many cases in the Supreme Court on all different issues. It's so rare to get one case before the Supreme Court. Bruce has been up there, I don't know, 12 times on all different areas of the law, from copyright to criminal and so on. It's really cool. And he's so zen about his cases. Um, we could all learn a little about being more relaxed and not uh, stressing so much, taking everything in stride. Uh, Bruce is a good guy, a good friend, and a great lawyer. So thank you. We'll be coming back. Uh, we're going to do every other week uh, this season and season four. So we'll see you in two weeks with the next episode. I hope everyone's having a great holiday season and we'll be back on For the Defense in two weeks. Thanks. <laughs>